You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You have to realize that the bad guys are getting smarter and smarter. And so the key is to, you know, uh, not just assume any information, any call, any text is legit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Alex Quilici, who is CEO of Umail, is going to join us to talk about robocalls. All right, Joe, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story comes from a listener named Derek, who has a story about how his aunt avoided a scam, which wasn't very obvious at first. Hmm. Now, the key point is the aunt called Derek. Yeah. Okay, because you're going to hear some of the things Derek did. Uh, And you want to talk about due diligence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, all right. I don't want to bury the lead here or, 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 I don't know, ruin the spoiler alert. Derek's the hero here? Yes. (laughs) Okay. That's correct. Very good. Very good. His aunt recently retired and is looking for an RV to ride around the country with her dog. Okay. Which seems like a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I could just picture her driving an RV and the dog sitting in the seat next to her. Right. With a bumper sticker that says, dog is my co-pilot. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. The, um, uh, you know, this is like a fantasy of mine as well. Okay. Know, to sell the the trailer that we have and get an RV and have me and the wife and the dogs just drive around. Just travel the country. Yep. Seeing seeing this great nation of ours. That's right. Sell okay. the house. <laughs> be right. essentially homeless and nomadic. There you go. Great idea. Yeah. Uh, but she's looking for this RV. She finds one on Facebook Marketplace, which which is the exact model that she's looking for. It's a Winnebago model. Okay. Right? Yeah. So she sends an email to the person, and this is one of the emails. Derek sends along one of the emails from the uh, seller, and the uh, people can't see who are listening because this is a podcast and not a video. I'm using air quotes. Okay. But it reads, Hi again. Thanks for the reply. At this moment, I am near Kittitas, Washington, in a military base waiting to be deployed overseas. This is the only reason why I left the Riata, which is the model, okay. stored with the paperwork at the shipping company named Kittitas All Out Trucking okay. in Kittitas. And then they provide a URL. Hmm. And then after that, they say Washington, right? W-A. Right. So okay. Put the URL right in the middle of the city and state. Uh, it's ready to be delivered. I signed a contract with them to take care of this on my behalf because I don't have time to sell it in person. The van is in their custody, ready for shipping, and they will take care of everything. The deal includes free delivery, and then parenthetically, the shipping fees were paid by the previous buyer. Uh, His loan didn't get approved. Hmm. And it will arrive at your address in five to seven days, depending on the exact location. Here's the key part. I want to use their escrow and transport services as they offer 100% protection and insurance to both buyer and sellers. Hmm. Payment must be sent to an escrow account created in your name, and they will offer you a five-day inspection period from the day the vehicle arrives at your location. This sounds great, Joe. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Right. You're coming along with the scam, Dave. Okay. (laughs) So this is not not a blind transaction. You can physically see the van before committing 
to buy and eliminate any concerns. In case you won't be satisfied, you can cancel the transaction and ship it back at my expense. This is getting better all the time. (laughs) If you're interested, please include in the next email your contact information, full name, shipping address, and phone number so we can get the ball rolling. Thank you, Elizabeth Terry. Okay. Okay. So Derek says there are four things that tipped him off to this. Number one, the Gmail address for Elizabeth Terry was misspelled. Oh. Right? Uh, And it didn't seem like it was a purposeful misspelling, but it seemed more like a non-native English-speaking typo. Huh. Okay. Right? That's So his sensors go up when that happens. Sure. Yeah. Number two, the seller claimed to be in the military and was to be deployed overseas and needed to sell the RV. This is a common lead-in for scams, for vehicle scams, and for uh, an RV is a vehicle. That's what the V stands for, right? Yeah. Uh, There is no military base near Kittitas, Washington. Okay. (laughs) All right. Third point that made Derek think, there was a previous buyer and their loan fell through. Mm -hmm. Now, he says, if I was the buyer, I'd kind of want my transport money back. Mm -hmm. You know, I put that money up, my loan fell through, I want my money back. But that didn't happen. Right. And fourth, the seller had engaged with a shipping company that worked as an escrow service. Mm -hmm. Right? So she could be sure she wasn't going to be scammed. The shipping company would ship the RV from Washington to Nevada and would wait five days for her to decide if she wanted to keep the RV or not, at which point she could return it at no cost. What shipping company can afford to wait around for five days, Derek says? Oh, right. Uh, That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Derek said the offer all seemed too good to be true, Mm. which is what made him think this is uh, not right. So Derek does a little bit of investigating. First thing he does is to see if there were any companies that had complaints against them. So go to the BBB webpage, Better Business Bureau. uh, And there is nobody, Kittitas Trucking, in in Washington. But there is one in Wisconsin, which is weird. Yeah. So then he checks with Washington State and finds that that company doesn't exist in Washington State. Mm. There is a company with the same name, but they do not transport vehicles. Okay. Which is interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh. This was all sort of fishy. So he begins digging deeper into the website. He goes to their website, which I took a look at. Uh, and it's got some red flags for me as well. It does. It has like some, some non-standard English in it. Okay. Uh, and the website is still up as of this recording. Okay. And it's, uh, he, he goes and looks at the code of the website. And it's just a business template. And they've got links in there in the code where you can put like Facebook profiles and everything else. And none of that is filled in. It's just a website with, you know, that looks really legit. Right. But if you read the English, it's not right. And then Derek checks the Whois database and finds out that the website was registered in February of this year. Ah. So the company claims to have been in business for 10 years, but they just now registered a website. Well, you can't rush these things. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's this, who knows if this internet thing is going to stay around. <laughs> right. It's just a fad day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. So he says at this point in time, he tells his aunt, abort. This is too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. This is no good. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, he found some other interesting things out. He found, found the company did not have a U.S. dot number, which you need if you're going to transport stuff from uh, one state interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. You need the a U.S. Department dot Department of number. Transportation. That's right. Yep. U.S. Yep. Department of Transportation. That's right. correct. Yeah. Uh, the phone number starts with the wrong area code. Okay. <laughs> so it, it wasn't in the right area code. He did a Google reverse image search of the team photo. Now, there is a great team photo on this website, Dave. Yeah. But it's actually a softball team from another company. 
And he found the image, the original source image. All right. So I say Derek went full Joe on this. <laughs> this is this is an impressive level of of due diligence. Okay. Paranoia. I was going to say is that it's a dubious <laughs> distinction, isn't right. it? <laughs> and one thing I want to point out is mm-hmm. whenever you're buying anything, yeah. Uh, and I'm I I don't know if this is different from state to state, but. You as a buyer are always entitled to pick the escrow agent. Oh, is that right? Yes. Hmm. I know that in Maryland, when you are going to buy a house, because as I told you, Dave, I had a failed sales career. And yes. the first job <laughs> in that sales career was in, was a real estate agent. Okay. Uh, one so of the you're things, practically an expert. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but one of the things they said was, uh, uh, according to Maryland law and most state laws, yeah. it is the buyer's right to choose the escrow company. Mm. Okay. So that when, makes sense. whenever you're buying something, you can say, nope, I don't want to use that escrow company. I want to use another one. Yeah. And that's a way to protect yourself. Uh, and if they insist upon using the shipping company's escrow company, the shipping company should be like, we don't really care who does escrow. We don't make a lot of money on escrow. Right. Um, and, and generally, escrow companies don't make a ton of money on escrow. They, the shipping company would be more interested in making the money on the shipping than they would on the escrow. And it wouldn't be the kind of thing that you would expect them to put up any resistance about. Right. Absolutely. Because it's a pretty standard thing to request. Absolutely. And yeah. if you as you if you as the as the buyer say, nope, I'm gonna pick my escrow company and you get pushback, red flag. Yeah. Big red flag. Yeah. Huh. Wow. All right. Well, I mean, Derek, thank you for sending yeah, this Derek, to us. Good story and this, good work. Uh, what strikes me about this is is the amount of depth here. I was sort of joking as you were reading about how everything sounded good. Right. But it did sound good. It did. Right. The whole uh, putting. I mean, putting mon- the money in escrow. That sounds great. Having five days to inspect it. That sounds great. You know, no risk to me. There's if there's no shipping costs. If I don't like it, they'll take it back. Yeah. It all sounds great. What do you suppose would have happened had she gone through with this? Uh. The first thing that would happen is any money she put into escrow would be gone. Because the escrow itself was a scam. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That sh- that shipping company doesn't exist. The escrow company is is fake. You're just wiring that money to another account. And yeah. And that's it. And that's, yeah, that's the end of that. Um, hmm. They may try to get access to more account information. I mean, if you have this, these vans, I did look up how much these vans sell for. Mm-hmm. Uh, one from the 90s, uh, late 90s, sells for about $27,000. Oh. So it's a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, hmm. Winnebago's tend to hold their resale value. I'm not sure why they do, probably because they're well-built machines. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think of, uh, in in terms of durability, two RV brands come to mind and Winnebago is one of them. Yeah. The other one's Airstream. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, these, these things have some kind of value and depreciate quickly if you buy some other brand. But when you buy a Winnebago, it doesn't really... Do that. You look. Go. Go looking for for Winnebagos. Use Winnebagos, and you'll see how expensive they are. Hmm. That's probably why the scammer chose that brand. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting for sure. And thanks to our listener Derek for sending that in to us. Uh, just a reminder: we would love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Uh, my story this week uh, actually comes from uh, the folks over at the FBI. 
uh, at the IC3. We talk about the Internet Crime Complaint Center fairly regularly around here. Yes. Uh, they just released their 2021 Internet Crime Report. Now, before you click through and, and check, Joe, I, I'm going to quiz you on some things here. Okay, I'll right. close that tab. <laughs> okay. I didn't see anything yet. <laughs> okay, good. So, we all the scams we talk about. Right. Right? If you had to guess, we talk about ransomware, tech support, all those kinds of things. What do you think was the most expensive scam for that the FBI looked into last year in terms of a total amount of, of money lost? What do you think was number one? I'm going to bet it was romance scams. Romance scams. Okay. It's not a not a bad guess. Okay. Romance scams was actually number three. Oh, okay. Coming in at $956 million. All right. So I, I missed that one. Okay. Yep. Can I guess again? Sure. Let's think here. Hmm. It's a financial loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, maybe employment scams because of the pandemic. Employment scams? Yes. Uh, let's see. I do not see employment scams not even on the list. in the top six that are on this this infographic I'm looking at. So guess again. Uh, I'm drawing a blank, Dave. What, All right. What's well, number one? So number one, coming in at number one, uh, business email compromise. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Duh. They're coming in $2 billion. Three hundred ninety-five thousand. Yeah, I, you know, here's the embarrassing part of this, Dave. Last week, I delivered a speech where I called that the king of social engineering attacks. Ah, I see. All right. <laughs> I should have just said business email compromise. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, but and, you put me under pressure, Dave. Well, I'm don't, sorry. Don't take I, me on family hate, feud. You know, I will I will know not to do that. Right. Um, so business email compromise came in about twice the dollar amount of the second one on the list, which was investment scams and fraud. Really? Which were $1.4 billion. Huh. Uh, after that was confidence fraud and romance scams, just under a billion. Mm -hmm. uh, number four was personal data breaches, $517 million. Mm. Uh, real estate and rental scams mm. were $350 million. So I guess that's the, you know, you show up for a, your... Um, uh, you know, your vacation rental, your yeah. uh, Airbnb, and it turns out somebody lives there. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> that, that's got to be embarrassing, right? Because, uh, you know, somebody, anybody can just put something on Airbnb. Yeah. And then take your money. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know how, how Airbnb does this internally. I'm sure they have processes for yeah, it. Yeah, they do. They do. But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, let's say it's unregulated rental. Right. <laughs> so what are you going to, you know, you rolls the dice, he takes your chances. Yep. I, I'm a hotel guy for this very reason. Yeah. Uh, there, and There's very few hotel scams. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Show up in the hotel that actually isn't there. Right. <laughs> they said there'd be a Hilton here. Um <laughs> And then uh, number six was tech support scams, $347 million. Um, so one of the things that they did here in their reporting, we're going to dig a little deeper, Joe. Uh, they uh, list by state. So I'm looking at our home state of Maryland okay. just for fun. And we'll have a link to this report in the show notes. So if you want to dig in here and look for your own state, uh, you can see what the, the various numbers are. Um, and what's interesting, so they list by by several different ways. They have uh, they list crime types by victim count, so the number of people who got hit by a particular ah, that's crime. good. Yep. And then they list by dollar loss. And they list by dollar loss. So 
the number one crime type in Maryland was something called no lead value. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know. Uh, second was non-payment, non-delivery. So, all right. A delivery scam. Yeah. Uh, third was uh, extortion. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And next was uh, tech support. Extortion, huh? Yeah. Uh, but business email compromise was like mm, fourth or fifth. Really? Which is interesting because it, it's higher uh, th- dollar value. This is just count attack count, right? Yeah, number of victims. Right. That makes sense because the business email compromise attack is not a frequent attack because it's a really skilled attack. Mm-hmm. But when it works, it pays off big. Right. So if you track these numbers, for example, as I said, uh, identity theft, right? 944 victims right. was uh, just over $6 million in damages. Mm-hmm. But business email compromise, which had 399 victims, $28 million. Right. Much in, bigger. Yes. Much bigger payouts for these guys. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, interesting to track here. This is always a good report. Say so the FBI puts this out every year. Uh, and it's pretty interesting to read through. It gives you some real insights onto, you know, what they do, the number of things that are reported to them. And, and I suspect that things are underreported, right? As we yeah, talk about here a lot. Absolutely. People are embarrassed to report. But it's a good reminder that the FBI does want to hear from you. Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, even if you don't hear back from the Internet Com- Crime Complaint Center, the yeah. IC3, they, they still use that data to compile reports like this and understand trends. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my understanding is that, like, uh, you know, a lot of government agencies, they would love to have uh, more staffing than they do uh-huh. to be able to handle this on a more personal There's level. There's a lot but, of crime out there. But they do the best they can. That's and, right. And uh, they are working on this every day. So if you, it's good to report this to your local uh, FBI office. They they do want to hear from you. Your, your, your scam is not too small for them to tally. You know, when business email compromise happens, one of the things I was said in this talk— the other last week, a couple weeks ago, yeah. was that uh, your technology probably won't help you at this point in time. Once these guys are in your system and talking directly to your people, mm-hmm. you're beyond the help of technology. Mm. The only thing that will protect you is the people and your policies uh, and procedures to make sure that you have uh, policies and procedures in place that prevent these kind of uh, scams from taking place and people who are trained with security awareness training to recognize when they're being targeted by a scammer. Yeah. Even if it's coming from the CEO's email address. Right. Right. No, it's a, it's a great point. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, those are our stories. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named John who writes, Hi, Joe and Dave. Hey, I got top billing this time. <laughs> Don't let it go to your head. Right? <laughs> I got a new follower on Instagram today, and with one quick glance, I thought of you guys. <laughs> oh, good. So we're, yeah. Right. People get scammed, they think of us. I well, suppose that's I don't good. Think, I don't think you got scammed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there were All a right. number of red flags. He thwarted the scam and right. he thought of us. I'll take that. Yes, exactly. All right. There were a number of red flags that listeners of your show would quickly pick up on, uh, but I saw some creativity employed and thought you might enjoy this. Okay. Uh, So we have to go to this document, Mm -hmm. Dave, because you sent along a a document with a bunch of screenshots from a phone of an Instagram account. All right. And the the Instagram account is of somebody named Mavis Mm -hmm. and uh, then followed by a long string of digits. 
Is that a phone number? Like, I, I'm not familiar with Inst- It looks like a phone number. But it does who, look like a phone number. Who I don't knows? know. Does it have enough digits to be? It looks like it's short one digit mm-hmm. for a phone number. Yeah. Well, and nothing says legitimacy than a name followed by a long string of numbers. That's right. Right? <laughs> and then underneath on our profile, it says, I'm Mavis, the Powerball lottery winner in Massachusetts. Ah. I'm the lottery winner of... Of seven hundred and fifty-eight million dollars, yeah, and I'm giving out twenty-five thousand to my first five thousand followers. Oh, right. Wow. <laughs> so that's that's the scam. Right? Thank you, Mavis. Right. Uh, some things he notices about this profile is there's the obligatory big check picture. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Mavis standing with her big check. Right. Sure. Exactly. Uh, you know, I always had, I had a friend once who said that if he ever won the lottery, he'd come in with wearing the big check. And that was it. That was all he'd be wearing. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you see people wearing a barrel. Right. He'd exactly. be wearing a big check. Big check right? with just straps. Check in with the boss. Hey, boss. <laughs> I'm out of here. Just want to let you know. <laughs> I'm done here. Got myself a big check. All right. <laughs> Next one is uh, is there's a pile of, uh, of, of an old white guy. It looks like me. You know, could be me. A little better shape than I am. <laughs> but he is counting a large stack of cash. Yeah, so they're sitting in a living room. Right. Looks like a scene out of Breaking Bad. Right, they're exactly. There. Anybody with this amount of money, this amount of cash on their coffee table mm-hmm. has a problem. <laughs> right? Yeah. First off, what are they going to do with this cash? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 uh it's it's a frightening uh, and she's giving away $25,000 to each person. These are $100 bills in this table. That's not what $25,000 in $100 bills looks like. John actually points out that's pretty unimpressive. It's a small stack of bills. It's only 250 bills. Okay. Right? It doesn't look like a coffee table covered in $100 bills. Yeah. You know, stacks yeah. of these things. Right. Uh, John points out that there's uh, tons of things in here that are are designed to target people or trigger people. There's a God Bless America mm, uh, mm-hmm. picture in here. There's a U.S. Powerball picture with a big flag behind it. Not the US, not the Powerball logo, but, uh, you know, something that looks like it could be. There's a government-approved stamp right, right in the middle of it. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, there and you then go. further down, she has some conversation pictures posted here that are obviously easily faked, but it says, Thank you, Miss Mavis. You're You're so true. Are so true. <laughs> Hope others get their chance. People are saying this is fake, but again, thanks. And then Mavis replies in this chat that doesn't exist and probably never took place. Yeah. It's okay, sweetie. People aren't believing it's real for some reason. <laughs> what do we can't think? imagine? Can't why. imagine why, right? Yeah. I can't get to everyone, but I'm trying. Stay safe. Uh, there's another one with a handwritten letter that says "God bless you," like from a child, right? Right. Yeah. Like it's that that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another picture here that says, I just want to message you. I just want to message you that I got it about two hours ago, ma'am. Thanks so much for Ms. Mavis. I really appreciate it. And then, of course, Mavis replies, good to hear. I mean, these are all just scam. These, Like I said, these conversations never took place. Yeah. Uh, if you contact this person and go, hey, I'm one of your first 5,000 followers. Where's my Where's my 25 grand? You'll get an advanced fee scam. I'm almost certain of it. Right, right. It'll say, oh, I just need $100. Right. And I'll send you your 25 grand. Yep. Mm. I'm sure that's how this works. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you for sending that in, John. It's a good catch of the day. Yeah, that, that is a fun one for sure. Again, we'd love to hear from you. If you have something you would like us to consider for catch of the day, send it to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com.
All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Quilici. He is the CEO of a company called Umail, uh, and we were talking about robocalls, which... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, is there a person alive right now with a mobile device who, ro- who robocalls aren't the bane of their existence, yeah. right? All right, well, here's my conversation with Alex Quilici. So I think there's some good news and bad news here. Uh, the bad news is that everybody's getting about, uh, as a country, we're getting 4 billion robocalls every month, which, you know, depending on how many people you think there are in the U.S., it works out to 10, 15, 20 calls a month. The good news is it was nearly 6 billion a little over two years ago. So there's an incredible number of these calls, but it's not as bad as it was. Hmm. I, I, I'll say it, it, <laughs> maybe it's just uh, my perception, but I, I, I can't claim that it feels like it's getting any better. I mean, has there been what are the attempts to help shut this down? Have regulators tried to step in here at all? Yeah, regulators have. And Congress actually passed something called the Trace Act. And the focus there was on making it harder for the bad guys to simply spoof a number, randomly pick a number and call somebody. So that was one of the big pushes. The other big push as part of the Trace Act was to allow enforcement agencies to have more tools, such as longer statutes of limitations, the ability to have certain ways of collecting data, things that enable them to really go after the the most egregious callers. So that's translated into the carriers building something called Shake and Stir, which despite the funny name is basically just authenticated caller ID. And so that makes it much easier for the telephone network to tell, is this call one that really is vouched for, or is it a number that someone may have just picked at random? That's been a big help in reducing, uh, starting to reduce spoofed calls. But there's a long way to go here. So the calls that are still making their way through, I mean, what's, what's the process there? Who's behind them and how are they making their way onto our phone system? Well, so the interesting thing is there's roughly 3,000 VoIP carriers in the U.S. You know, most of these carriers were designed to support business or support a particular kind of calling, like international calls, maybe from a particular country or prepaid phone calls. There's, There's lots of these carriers. But the bad guys can very easily get an account with these carriers and get phone numbers from these carriers and get access to the network and start making large numbers of phone calls. So it's really, really easy to get on the U.S. telephone network and start making robocalls at volume. And is it a matter that these for these VoIP operators, I mean, it's it's hard to tell if these are a high volume of legitimate business phone calls versus the the scam calls? There are ways to tell, but it's not easy. It's it's sort of complicated technology, right? So email can tell when there's bad guys making phone calls because we have a base of users who allow us to block their calls and keep their voicemail box clean. That means we get audio of what these uh, bad guys are leaving, and we can use that audio to understand what the phone numbers are doing and which ones are misbehaving and find the bad guys. That's one technique. There's other techniques which look at the duration of the calls. If a particular number is making lots of phone calls and they're all super short duration and they don't behave like normal phone calls, that's likely to be suspicious too. So there's a number of different technological ways to try to understand, is this a legit, likely to be a legitimate call or not? The thing is, that's complicated technology. It's not something that your average little VoIP carrier you know, knows how to build or wants to build or has the expertise to build. Now, I know something that you and your colleagues are, are tracking is the, the growing level of sophistication of some of these bad actors, that they're, 
they're increasing the degree to which they target people? Well, there's a couple of things they're doing. So one is they are trying to work from lists because the idea is, you know, originally what they did is they would just call huge numbers of people from a 1-800 number, right? Well, that turns out to be pretty easy to block, right? It's very easy for them to make the calls, easy to fight against. Then they'd start spreading it out. Then they started making up lots of numbers. Then they started doing smaller volumes of each number. So the bad guys are doing a number of techniques to try to get through to people. So that's sort of the biggest problem is stopping them from doing those techniques. One of them is called snowshoeing now, where they actually go get a bunch of legitimate phone numbers and make relatively small numbers of calls from each number, a thousand calls, say, in a day, or even a hundred calls in a day, then throw away the number and get another number. So that's one technique they're using to get through. The other is they're being much less, they're being much more discriminatory about which numbers they want to call. So instead of calling everybody and making, you know, 100 million calls, if you can get a list of the million people most susceptible to the scam you want to do, say Alzheimer's patients or older people in Miami or whatever that target's going to be, then you don't have to call 100 million phone numbers. You need to call a million and you're much less likely to get blocked because that million can be distributed over a number of different individual caller IDs. Yeah, it seems kind of like a a perfect storm here because the, you know, the the folks who are most likely to have landlines and and not be able to throw some technology behind defending themselves against this are also that older generation who these folks are are targeting and I I submit are, are more likely to fall into a scam like this. Well, it's interesting because different scams target different people. One of the largest uh, losses we've seen over the past few years was actually a 23-year-old college student. So it wasn't, you know, an 84-year-old grandma. It was a 23-year-old college student who got calls from people basically telling her she hadn't paid her tuition and there were problems and they needed her to pay right away or she was going to get kicked out of USC and go back to, to China. And she fell for the scam. So I think it's uh, older people may be a little more susceptible but the bad guys are targeting everybody. You know, if you look at the refinance scams and the debt collection scams, they're not going after older people to, to say refinance your debt. They're going smack dab after millennials and Gen X. Hmm, that's interesting. So what's to be done here on a device basis? You know, I, I see, you know, ads come by for various apps that, that claim that they can help uh, help you on your mobile device to get control of this. To what degree are they uh, helpful? They're all helpful. So the question is, you know, how helpful are they? But even blocking 50% of the bad calls that come in makes a big difference. And I would say the apps that are out there are between 50 and 90% effective. I think Umail, when we've measured it, we block about 90% of the calls that come in that, that are illegal. We miss some of them where somebody just picks one number they've never used before and makes a call. Those are hard to block but we get most of the others. And so I think it's just different apps are about how you like, how the app behaves, how you can configure it. You know, does it block the calls that are bothering you? Is there any crowdsourcing going on? You know, the, the folks who are in the business you're in, is there any sharing of these databases of the, you know, the, the bad numbers out there? We at Umail don't actually share our database uh, with other companies, but we do do is provide information to law enforcement. So when we see illegal phone calls coming in, we have partnerships where we can send that data to, uh, for example, the traceback group who can then trace back the call to the source where we've given them clear evidence of illegal call behavior and all the data around that call. They can go find out who made it and the carrier that put it on the network can go after their customer. Or in some cases, they, if they see lots of these from a carrier, they may go after the carrier. 
So we try to contribute. We like to say that if someone joins Umail, they're joining the fight and the illegal calls they get will get delivered somewhere where law enforcement can make use of it. So what are your recommendations here? I mean, for for folks who want to do a better job of getting on top of this, what what sort of words of wisdom do you have? Well, I think for the average consumer, you should be uh, having a robocall blocking app on your phone in the same way you wear a seatbelt when you drive a car. It's just low-cost protection that really helps. I think that's number one. I think number two is you have to realize that the bad guys are getting smarter and smarter. I got a text message one today, which was, you know, hi, Alex, this is Pat. Uh, this is all about your refi. Um, we've got some new information for you, blah, blah, blah. Now, if I'd been refining something right now, I might have fallen for that, right? They're getting really smart. And so the key is to, you know, uh, not just assume any information, any call, any text is legit. You've got to go do your research before you contact them back. And so if, if I was in a refi, I wouldn't call this number back. I would go you know, find my bank's phone number, call them up and say, what's going on? You know, do that. So people have to be really smart and protect themselves, both with the app and with a change in consumer behavior. And the thing is, we're all used to this from email, right? I'm sure you get them. I get them, you know, these email phishing scams, right? Uh, your Norton subscription has just been renewed for $3.99, you know, call here or click here if that's not the case, uh, if you have a problem. So we've all been trained, hey, don't click a link in an email. We now have to be trained to don't just call or text a number back. Where do you suppose we're headed here? Are we are we going to see more crackdown on this from folks like the FCC, or do you suspect it's really going to be up to the users to to be in control of this? I think it's it's a combination of things. The FCC, the Attorney Generals, they're all working very hard. the The problem is the bad guys are also working very hard, <laughs> and so you've got kind of a cat and mouse game where enforcement can you know push on push on the thing and the bad guys just kind of move and scurry somewhere else. If you ask me, what's it going to look like in a couple of years? I think the volumes of calls are going to continue to go down. I'm very positive that we're on a good trend line and we'll see fewer and fewer robocalls as a whole, which is a good thing. But I think the robocalls that people make are going to become more and more harmful. They're going to be more and more targeted. They'll be more and more sophisticated in terms of you know scamming people. And so you have fewer calls, but they're more dangerous. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting. Uh, the good news is we're down from 6 billion robocalls a month to 4 billion robocalls a month. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, that's progress. Well, I guess it is. <laughs> uh, you know, but still 4 billion robocalls yeah. left to 2 go. billion of them come to me. Right. So, yeah. well, that's good. You're, you're, you're taking one for the team, Dave. You're okay. taking 2 billion for the team. There you go, yeah. Pardon my skepticism here, but I don't think the Trace Act has been as effective as hope. <laughs> right. Uh, I I still get calls from neighbor numbers. Do you get those? I do. Um, yep. Yep. Alex says there's a long way to go, and maybe maybe I'm saying this a little bit too early. So as time goes on, perhaps this will become more effective. It is another tool for uh, for prosecution. I'm not sure how I feel about that argument, though. But, I mean, in this case, okay. I'd, yeah. I'd like to see these people prosecuted. Yeah. Uh, carriers have built a system to authenticate carrier ID, ca- caller ID. Mm-hmm. You know what this reminds me of? Hmm. Email, hmm. right? The developers of caller ID and email did not envision the threat model that we have today with these two products. I see. Right? Yeah. yeah. So all the security we're working on, work, we're developing for them now is bolt-on security. 
Mm-hmm. And that has so many problems. Number one, you have an adoption problem. You have to get everybody in the in the team, everybody who uses the service to adopt the technology. Right. Like everybody has to use this new authenticated caller ID. Yeah. Everybody on email has to use DMARC records and have them properly configured. Right. right? You don't want to break it for the folks who don't who haven't adopted yet. Right. It's got to be backward compatible. Yeah. Right. It you have it it costs so much more money and time to implement these things afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. And if you just think about security when you're developing a new product or a new service or a new protocol, make that one of the first things you think about. Put yeah. security in the requirements document, in the design document, in the concept document. Put it in there. Yeah. We have 3,000 voice over IP carriers in the U.S. That is astounding. I was unaware of that. <laughs> It's a um, lot. <laughs> Dave, you want to start a VoIP business? I do not, Joe. No, okay. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting here is what Alex is talking about is the economy of scamming. Mm-hmm. And we see that that's changing the technique. They change who they call and where they call from. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think Alex's prediction about the future is probably accurate. These guys are going to essentially be doing spear phishing calls. Right. They're going to they're going to find out that those are much more effective, and have a pr- higher profit margin, and that's what they're going to do. So rather than making a you know a billion calls or you know, hundred million calls, they're going to go down to a million highly tailored targeted calls. Right. That's going to be dangerous for a lot of people. Yeah. Because these things, generally speaking, whenever you focus your attention on one person as an attacker, your attack becomes a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. Right now, these bad guys are targeting everybody. But yeah. Alex's refi example provides an excellent example of how it works, mm-hmm. right? These guys didn't just send a text out to Alex. They sent a text out to probably at least a million people. What are the odds that some of those people are in doing refis right now? Probably about 100%, close to 100%. Sure. Right? It's almost certain you're going to get somebody in there who's doing a refi and going to go, uh-oh, I got to respond to this. Yeah. Because a refi is very important to you. A refi is refinance of your home mortgage, I guess. Yeah. Um, it could it could be also there are refinances for cars as well. Sure. So it's vague, deliberately vague. Right. Right. I'm really happy to see that Alex and and Umail report their information to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's good stuff. Again, I'd like to see these guys prosecuted. I'd like to see some of these people uh, you know, taken away. These guys are horrible people who scam uh, people and Alex talks about how they they build lists of people with Alzheimer's disease. Ugh. Yeah, what what kind of reprehensible scum do you have to be to do that? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, I just I just can't fathom the lack of conscience these people have. And no, it's the worst of the worst. It is. All right. Well, our thanks to Alex Quilici for joining us again. He is the CEO of Umail, and we do appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.